When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Are you ready to make America great again? Bernie Sanders doesn't get it. Hillary Clinton doesn't get it. Barack Obama, he really don't get it. The next time we see him, we might have to kill him. Donald Trump has a lot of work to do telling us what he's going to do specifically. I continue to believe Mr. Trump will not be president. And the reason is because I have a lot of faith in the American people. Hello, and welcome to TrumpCast. I'm Seth Stevenson, a senior writer at Slate, and I'm filling in today for Jacob Weisberg. You may remember me as the guest from Monday's episode, when I talked about what it's like being a journalist covering Donald Trump. While I was attending those rallies, there was one refrain I heard Trump say over and over. The problem is they're making bad deals. They're horrible negotiators, the Republicans. Now, the fact is, I've always gotten along good with both sides. I think it's one of the good assets, but I know how to negotiate. I would have never made the deal that they made two weeks ago. Well, today on the show, we're heading to business school to learn a little bit more about the fine art of negotiating a deal. But first, on Monday, presidential candidates headed to Washington to win over the influential American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, AIPAC. We were curious what the Jewish protesters outside of AIPAC thought about Mr. Trump. Turns out a group of them made a pinata with his likeness. Let's listen. Can you just describe it, first of all? Uh, so this is a clown pinata with Trump's face on it, and he has a little name tag that says, Hello, my name is Haman, because we believe Trump is equal to Haman in the Purim story. Can you explain who Haman is and like what that connection is? Yeah, so Purim is a Jewish holiday that's coming up, and we read the Megillah and this story about Haman, who is in like, the cabinet of the king saying you shouldn't tolerate the Jews and is trying to create this plan to kill the Jews. And Esther, who is one of the king's queens, finds out, goes to the king and says, I'm Jewish, don't kill my people. And so with Trump, he is hateful and bigoted and racist and sexist and all of those things. APAC, you know, pro-Israel at any cost, inviting somebody who is so hateful. And like, if he turned against our Jewish community, they would never have invited him, right? Which is why during our action, we had groggers. Traditionally, um, whenever you hear his name, you use the Groggers to drown out his name because he's so evil in the story. Do you think that that connected with any of the APAC folks at all? Oh, I mean, totally. They are Jewish and they understand the form story and our traditions. And I think that was definitely a very clear message. You are so pro-Israel, no matter what, that you are involving yourself in Trump and his hateful politics. If you stay silent right now, your community will be remembered 
for not speaking out. We are going to march back to Fifth and Ever. We've started singing Ola That piece comes to us from Mickey Capper, who produces a podcast called Sidewalks. You can listen to more slices of daily life at sidewalks.xyz. And now, let's make a deal. I'm joined by my former professor, Aaron Wallen, a lecturer at Columbia Business School. Donald Trump has talked a lot about his competence in making deals and negotiation. It's a big part of his pitch to his voters. Professor Wallen is here to discuss what the academic research can teach us about negotiation. All right. Thanks for being with us, Professor Wallen. My pleasure, Seth. So the first uh, major principle of negotiation that I wanted to talk about is anchoring. And I thought we'd um, talk about anchoring with regard to some of the things that Donald Trump um, has threatened to do or promised to do. So he said, I'm going to immediately d- deport um, 11 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S. Um, or I'm going to make Mexico pay for the wall we're going to build along the U.S. southern border. But in other places, Trump has hinted that, you know, maybe that's just a starting point for negotiation, that maybe that's that's talking big, but he's going to eventually come to some kind of compromise. But you want to say something big first so that you can later walk it back a little. Now, when I took your course at Columbia, um, we talked about that as anchoring. Can you describe what anchoring is and, 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 and how anchoring might play a role in these kinds of things that Trump is saying? Sure thing, Seth. Um, what anchoring is, is setting an ext- uh, sort of extreme self-favorable position uh, early on in the conversation. Uh, and what's powerful about anchoring is it affects us cognitively without our even being aware of it. So somebody could throw out a extreme, you know, first offer, uh, sort of along the lines of what Trump is doing with this wall. And uh, what happens is people do not adjust away from that initial proposal, that initial anchor sufficiently. And because they don't do that, even though someone like Trump might, might understand at some level that uh, he's not going to get everything he's asking for initially, he's not going to get that anchor position, um, he will get something fairly close to it uh, if anchoring is effective. So the idea is that, you know, maybe uh, Mexico didn't even have in mind the idea, the thought that they would be paying for this wall along their northern border. But by raising the, starting off by saying that not only are you going to build this wall, you're going to pay for it, it brings the debate so far over onto his turf that they're now forced to engage somewhat on his terms. That's, is that the idea? That's right. They're going to they're gonna sort of reject that initial idea, but they're going to couch the conversation with respect to that initial idea. So they're going to be saying, well, we're not going to go that far, whereas initially, you know, that, that may not have been part of the their idea of what could even possibly happen. Right. So yeah. uh, now continuing with this idea, because everybody knows about Donald Trump's promise to build this wall on the southern border and make Mexico pay for it. So so again, imagining this future negotiation between a President Trump and, and Mexico, um, what are the some of the other things that might come into play? For instance, I know one of the things you talked about in your course was how um, if we just come at it with, with demands, um, we might not get that far in the negotiation. But if we think about the interests that underlie those demands, we might actually get somewhere. Tell me a little bit about underlying interests and how they play a role in negotiation. Of course. So the positions are the the statements we make about what we want, what we're asking for in a negotiation. The interests are the reasons why we're making those statements. So what uh, we need to pay attention to are maybe not so much what people are asking for, what they're saying they want, 
but rather what they really need. And the, the power and the magic of that way of thinking, of thinking about interests, is that it allows us to find creative solutions and ways to make both uh, or however many parties in the negotiation happy um, in, in, in a way that kind of fundamentally meets all their principal needs, but it it may not be the same as what they thought they wanted, what they were asking for initially. So it's going a little deeper into the why behind uh, that initial ask. So I, w- I would think in, in this sort of negotiation, if this kind of negotiation were actually going to take place, a potential President Trump and, and the Mexican side would have to think about um, is not necessarily, you know, we're going to get a wall, we're going to have X person pay for it, X country pay for it, but rather, you know, what is the underlying reason why Trump thinks a wall is a good idea? Well, is there some other way that would actually be doable and that would actually be acceptable to both parties? Right. So if the underlying interest is, oh, we want to keep out undocumented workers because we feel that that, that they have an economic impact on working class Americans, or if the idea is we want to create a, a, a better security zone to keep out ISIS, which I think is part of the idea here, then, then uh, or maybe there are other ways to accomplish that than actually physically building the wall and making Mexico pay for it. Maybe there are other security solutions Mexico could help us with or something like that. Although my personal feeling is that, that for Trump, this wall has become such a like a uh, a monolithic concept in his campaign that I don't know if he's going to be willing to compromise or think about underlying interests. I feel like he's very locked in to this specific demand. And what, so what are, the, what are the dangers if you get locked into a specific demand? Yeah, I mean, uh, what I would suggest to, to, to most people is to avoid making broad uh, public statements that suggest if you don't get that thing that you're asking for that you've somehow lost or that you somehow have not completed a successful negotiation. To make a public statement like that about, you know, we must have this thing happen like a wall is to sort of lock yourself into uh, a lack of creativity. And I think, you know, it just may end up being a non-starter. There may not be a possibility for negotiation because of something like that. You know, I'd rather see somebody say maybe, you know, if he's going to ask for the wall, fine, but um, it may be better if it were one of several possibilities he was thinking of, or if he was starting out with, well, here's why I think the wall is important. We have security issues, according to him. We have immigration issues, according to him. This is his best way of addressing it. Um, I think what he should do is potentially open himself up to other people's suggestions for addressing those problems. And they may or may not be real underlying problems, uh, and they may be of vital importance to him. But to lock himself into this is the only way to solve that problem seems to be very limiting. And the Mexican uh, Mexican officials have already said um, in, in no uncertain terms they will not pay for this wall. So w- what, what do we have when we have two sides? Um, I remember you talking about a zone of possible agreement or zone of potential agreement, the ZOPA. It sounds like we have two sides here with potentially no no ZOPA. Is that, uh, what happens when, when that's the case? When one side just says, you're going to pay for this wall, and another side is, says, there is no way we will ever pay for this wall. What is there? What happens? The classic way to transform a ZOPA where there's no possible overlap, like what seems to be the case here, is to add extra issues, to add additional issues. Um, so something like, you know, we, we're not able to pay for the whole thing ourselves on the Mexican side, but we maybe could pay for it if you were able to give us this favorable trade agreement here. And then the net for us is more money, but you're getting to be able to say, hey, we had Mexico pay for the wall. In other words, you've added this second issue, this, this trade agreement as a sort of side issue, and the total scope of the deal may be a net win for both sides, but Trump is able to sort of manage the optics that he'd like. So that's just one potential uh, example of how, 
something like that, where there's just seems like there's total disagreement between both sides, there's no overlap whatsoever, there's no ZOPA, can be transformed into a situation where there is some overlap and there's a positive ZOPA. So if it's about the principle of Mexico pays for this, Trump gets that. If for Mexico the principle is we just don't have the money for that, then this extra trade deal kind of makes them whole in that sense. If they're objecting on the basis of principle, however, it, it may not work in that case. Like if they just don't want to be seen as paying for something like this because they fundamentally disagree that they should have to do that, it becomes much trickier. So let's talk a little bit about, because one of the things we talked about in negotiation class was what happens when the other side is, is lying to you, when you know they're lying, they're being jerks of some sort, or they're lying. Um, I can say from personal experience, having gone to many Donald Trump rallies for my job when I, when I have covered some of them, he lies a lot. He says a lot of things that are untrue, that, that, can be, that are provably untrue. How do you deal with a negotiation partner, someone on the other side of the table who's lying and you know they're lying? What, are there any, is there anything you can do about that? Or how do you, how do you um, compensate for that? I mean, at the very extreme, if you're willing to, you can just call them out on that and say, listen, I, I know that's not true, and here's why I know that's not true. Here's my actual fact. Now, that's often not desirable or not possible because it, it will put somebody into a defensive mindset. It will put the liar into sort of a, a closed closed down mindset, and it may stall the negotiation. What may be better is to, yes, be aware that they are misrepresenting, that they are lying, and, and try to... Uh, more subtly probe what they're saying. In other words, uh, if they were just making something up, it's unlikely they're going to have a very detailed history to it, a detailed story to it that they can use to back up what they're saying. So ask a lot of questions. Um, people who are lying often are inconsistent. So try and get them to commit to a particular statement or point of view and try and find a second statement that's either consistent or inconsistent with that and see where they fall along those lines. If it turns out that they, they are switching pretty often, that would suggest to me that there's a lie going on. Um, the problem with lying from you know, his standpoint or other people's standpoint is that you start to develop reputation for being a liar. And certainly in business, um, the, the world is small enough that if you develop this reputation as a liar, you're not going to find future partners too readily. In the world of politics, Things are a little bit different, unfortunately, and uh, when people as a whole are not paying very close attention, you tend to get away with some of these lies that the, the people who are fact-checking and are paying more attention uh, are maybe exposing, but because the masses are not stopping the lie, I, I don't know that there's much incentive for a candidate who's maybe not totally sticking with the facts to stop. Let's get into some of the, 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 the finer and smaller points of negotiation technique. So one thing I've noticed that Donald Trump does a lot is he says, everybody is saying how, what a good job I did in the debate. Everyone is saying that blah, blah, blah. Now, I remember we talked about that, I think, as, a, as social proof was the term. Right. Can you explain what social proof is? So basically, social proof is if everybody is kind of doing something, it must be good. So the, the idea that he's exploiting is that um, you know, if everyone else in the social world kind of thinks I'm doing a good job, then you should think I'm doing a good job because everyone else can't be wrong, right? So it's the same thing in a commercial where they say, you know, millions of people can't be wrong. Millions of blank customers can't be wrong. 
It's the same sort of principle that he's trying to uh, employ there. So it's a persuasive principle. It's an effective sort of principle um, without having to think too much about it. If we see that everyone else is kind of going with that particular action, it looks good to us. I know there are some studies about how gender can affect negotiation. Um, if if um, Trump gets the Republican nomination and Hillary Clinton gets the Democratic nomination and they face off one-on-one in a general election battle, um, a, a one-on-one debate might not be exactly a negotiation, but it shares some things in common with negotiation. What what can what have studies shown or what can we learn about um, how gender can affect negotiation? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the principal findings, this is from a study by uh, Emily Manatella and Michael Morris, uh, is the idea that women tend to be under-assertive in negotiations. They tend to pull back um, the, the sort of ask that they're going for uh, and the, the sort of contentiousness that um, negotiators sort of should develop in a positive way. That is, you don't just take what you're given initially. You kind of push back a little. You try and fight for what you want to some extent. And I mean that not in a nasty way, but in a positive way. Women, because there's a stereotype that women ought not to be assertive, um, tend to tend to hold back in negotiations. They tend to not push as hard. They tend not to even ask to negotiate as often uh, because they're aware of the stereotype. So, you know, do I, do I know or think that this would apply to uh, candidate Clinton in a debate? Not necessarily. I'm not sh- so sure that she's worried about that particular issue uh, for herself. Um, but there is, there is the potential for people to interpret the same behavior from her quite differently because she's a woman than if uh, a different candidate, a male candidate, had done that same behavior. So the same assertiveness, the same pushback that she might show in a debate can get interpreted in a very negative way compared to if a male had done the same thing. All right, well, let's say there is a President Trump. Um, how big a deal is negotiation? Is negotiation something that, that we should vote for a president on the basis of? I mean, he's made his, a lot of his campaign has been about, I'm going to get a better deal with China. I'm going to get us a better deal here. I'm going to, I'm going to negotiate this. I'm going to get deals, deals, deals. The, the greatest deal of all is going to be peace in the Middle East, and I'm going to broker that. How big a deal is negotiation? Is it something that we should make our number one priority in, in, in electing a, a president? I would say it's a huge priority, and it's a huge uh, ability if somebody can negotiate successfully. You mentioned several examples, trade deals, these uh, political deals. These are the more overt examples. But even understanding what a voting populace, what their underlying interest is, what, what it is that they really care about, and being able to deliver that to them, that relies on negotiation principles. You mentioned persuasive principles. Those are highly relevant. Uh, understanding your partner, understanding emotional states, uh, being able to craft creative deals with whomever, people on your side, people who are on the other side, uh, absolutely have to do with negotiation. So I think developing a negotiation skill set that is strong in a lot of different areas can only be of great help to, to a world leader. Aaron Wallen is a lecturer at Columbia Business School. Thanks for talking to me today. It's great to talk to you. That's it for today's episode of Trumpcast. Tell us what you think of the show by giving us a rating and review on iTunes. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you get every episode as soon as we release it. You can find me on Twitter at Stevenson Seth. Trumpcast is produced by Henry Malofsky and Jason DeLeon. Thanks to Mickey Capper of Sidewalks for contributing the APAC piece. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. I'll leave you with this clip from Jimmy Kimmel, all about the love Donald Trump is spreading in the world. I'm Seth Stevenson. Jacob Weisberg will be back later in the week. Thanks for joining me on Trumpcast.
He spread so much love, we boiled it down and pieced it together to make this powerful Donald Trump love bomb. I love this country. I love the country. I love the old days. I love free trade. I love China. China's great. I love Mexico. I love the Mexican people. I love the Hispanics. I love the Saudis. I love Israel. I love the evangelicals. I love the Mormons. I love South Carolina. I love Iowa. I love Nashville. I love you people. I love you. 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 I love you all. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love the poorly educated.